Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is February 6th, and on this day in history, in 1778, the United States gained official recognition from France as the two nations signed the Treaty of Amity and Commerce and the Treaty of Alliance in Paris. On this day in 1788, Massachusetts became the sixth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. On this day, in 1899, the U.S. Senate ratified a peace treaty between the U.S. and Spain. On this day, in 1911, the first old-age home for pioneers opened in Prescott, Arizona. On this day, in 1926, the NFL adopted a rule that made players ineligible for competition until their college class graduated. Ooh. On this day in 1932, dog sled racing happened for the first time in Olympic competition. On this day in 1933, the 20th Amendment to the Constitution was declared in effect, which moved the start of presidential, vice presidential, and congressional terms from March to January. Thank God they did that. On this day in 1937, K. Elizabeth Ohi became the first Japanese woman lawyer when she received her degree from John Marshall Law School in Chicago, Illinois. On this day in 1959, the U.S. for the first time successfully test-fired a Titan intercontinental ballistic missile from Cape Canaveral. On this day in 1971, NASA astronaut Alan B. Shepard used a six-iron that he brought inside his spacecraft and swung at three golf balls on the surface of the moon. Oh, that, that guy. On this day in 1985, the French mineral water company Perrier debuted its first new product in 123 years. The new items were water with a twist of lemon, lime, and orange. On this day in 1987, President Ronald Reagan turned 76 years old, becoming the oldest U.S. president in history. On this day in 1998, Washington National Airport was renamed for U.S. President Ronald Reagan with the signing of a bill by the U.S. President Bill Clinton. And lastly, in the year 2000, in Finland, Foreign Minister Tarha Halonen became the first woman to be elected president. Sad. So goddamn sad. Isn't that sad? If you're an American, that should make you very, very sad. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. I'm John Lerner. Stay tuned. There have been countless crazy and or impeachable things done by Donald Trump or in his name since the inauguration. These are just the top 50. Here they are, as fast as I can blow through them. January 20th, bounds into the White House, leaving the First Lady standing alone by the car. Insists at an inaugural ball that it stopped raining as he started to give his inaugural address, when in fact it started raining as he started to speak. January 21st, goes to speak at the CIA memorial wall, reportedly bringing his own staff with him to applaud him. Claims he holds the record for the most Time magazine covers. He actually has 11, Richard Nixon, 55. Claims that the crowd at his inauguration extended to the Washington Monument. Has his press secretary, who is a Melissa McCarthy character, shout a lie to the reporters, quote, this was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. January 22nd implies none of the Women's March participants had voted. After repeatedly stating he would release his tax returns after an audit was complete, Kellyanne Conway says, quote, he's not going to release his tax returns. January 23rd tells congressional leaders he would have won popular vote if it had not been for three to five million illegal votes. 
January 24th, tweets a panoramic photo of the inauguration as evidence of his crowd size claims, doesn't notice photo is mistakenly dated January 21st, the day after his inauguration, claims carnage in Chicago, threatens to send in, quote, the feds without ever saying if he means the military or Elliot Ness and his untouchables. January 25th, makes up story about two people being murdered during Obama's Chicago farewell speech, threatens to cut off federal funds to sanctuary cities, demands investigation into non-existent voter fraud, specifically voters registered in more than one state, doesn't seem to notice that among voters registered in more than one state are Steve Bannon, Sean Spicer, Steve Mnuchin, son-in-law Jared Kushner, and his own daughter Tiffany cites Pew Research data to support his voter fraud claims. The author of the report refutes the voter fraud claims, then claims Pew Researcher is groveling and suppressing the truth. Tells interviewer about imaginary three to five million fraudulent votes, quote, if you look at it, they all voted for Hillary, they all voted for Hillary, they didn't vote for me, I don't believe I got one, okay, these are people that voted for Hillary Clinton ignores logic that his conspiracy theory thus requires that Democrats planted five million illegal voters around the country but forgot to put any of them in the states where just 77,000 votes cost Clinton the election. January 26th, reported to have personally pressured United States Park Service to support his inauguration crowd exaggeration after campaigning against Clinton for slovenly handling of classified data and private email, is reported to have tied the POTUS Twitter account to private email, and to be using only one-step security, and to be tweeting from what appears to be a five-year-old non-secure phone. January 27th, cites voting fraud expert who claims three million illegal votes, but who has never produced any of the evidence he has repeatedly promised issues statement commemorating International Holocaust Remembrance Day that does not include the words Jew, Judaism, or Jewish, institutes a refugee ban on Muslim nations on a day that recalls how America turned its back on refugees from Nazi Germany. January 28th, Muslim ban is so hastily introduced no one knows how it applies to those with green cards and border and customs agents are left guessing what to do next in phone call with Prime Minister of Australia, becomes angered about agreed-upon refugee resettlement deal, reportedly hangs up on Prime Minister. January 29th, falsely claims Muslim ban is just an offshoot of the reevaluation of immigrant vetting once ordered by Obama. This was only in Iraq. Dismisses anti-ban statement by Senators Graham and McCain by calling them, quote, former presidential candidates says nothing as purported white supremacist Trump fan allegedly opens fire at a Quebec City mosque, killing six, injuring five. January 30th claims weekend airport chaos owes not to his Muslim and refugee ban, but to Delta computer problems and the, quote, fake tears of Senator Schumer, ignoring that Schumer's great-grandmother and seven of her nine siblings were murdered by the Nazis after they were unable to become refugees. January 31st, among those confirming they were detained at a U.S. airport during Muslim ban crisis because he once visited Iran, the former Prime Minister of Norway. February 1st, commemorates start of Black History Month by seemingly implying he does not realize Frederick Douglass has been dead since 1895, then complains about CNN. Vice President Pence commemorates start of Black History Month by tweeting tribute to Abraham Lincoln. White House does not issue readout of weekend phone call between Trump and Vladimir Putin, reportedly because White House switched off the recorder. Attacks Australian refugee deal, calling the 1,250 refugees, quote, thousands of illegal immigrants. Revealed by a personal physician to be taking doses of the drug Propecia to promote hair growth, possible side effects include dizziness, weakness, feeling like you might pass out, and, quote, abnormal ejaculation. February 2nd, at National Prayer Breakfast, asked for prayers for Arnold Schwarzenegger's TV ratings, and also at prayer breakfast in front of religious leaders from 70 countries, says, quote, the hell with it. Adjust sanctions against the sales of cybersecurity materials to the Russian FSB, the same spy agency accused of blackmailing him. Administration claims Yemen raid was authorized by Obama. Two Obama administration national security advisors publicly state this is not true. 
Advisor Propaganda Barbie, Kellyanne Conway, complains that media has ignored one of the justifications for the Muslim ban, namely the Bowling Green Massacre. There was no Bowling Green Massacre. Conway claims she misspoke. Cosmopolitan and TMZ will later report she had already cited the same event, a fictional massacre, in interviews with them. Tweets that Iran has been, quote, formally put on notice, even though the phrase means nothing diplomatically or militarily. Places on the national security staff a man who helped add the infamous 16 words to George W. Bush's 2003 State of the Union address. February 3rd, tweets about a, quote, new radical Islamic terrorist with a knife at the Louvre Museum in Paris. The attack was at the Louvre Mall. There was one minor injury. The alleged perpetrator is Egyptian and would not have been prevented from entering the U.S. by the Trump ban. Trump still has not mentioned the Quebec mosque attack. The Pentagon posts terrorist video supposedly obtained during that Yemen raid to prove the raid was worth it. Administration pulls down that terrorist video when it turns out that terrorist video has been on the internet since 2007. February 4th, in clip revealed in advance of the Super Bowl interview, says he respects Vladimir Putin. Interviewer says, quote, but he's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. Trump replies, there are a lot of killers. We've got a lot of killers. What, you think our country's so innocent? Pressed, he implies those killers could include those involved in the war in Iraq. Deputy editor of Wall Street Journal editorial page then tweets, never in history has a president slandered his country like this, and he's goddamned right. February 5th finishes two-day-long siege of Twitter attacks against the Washington state judge who ruled against the Muslim ban, writing of possible terrorism, quote, if something happens, blame him and court system is reported to have signed the executive order placing Steve Bannon on the National Security Council without fully reading it first. Super Bowl interviewer now presses him for data to support illegal voting claims and he replies, forget that, forget all that, and then implies registration rolls prove him right, suggesting he doesn't realize that not everybody who is registered votes. February 6th, after one poll showing his first approval rating at a record low 44%, and a CBS poll showing his Muslim ban opposed by 51 to 45%, and a CNN poll showing it rejected 53 to 47%, tweets, right out of George Orwell, any negative polls are fake news, and deliberately lies to officers and troops at U.S. Central Command that the media does not want to report terrorist attacks, quote, they have their reasons, and you understand that. In any other context, business or country, Trump's supporters would now be organizing his removal from authority, even if it were only for his own good. Get him out of here. Resist. Peace. All right. And welcome to The Next Best Thing. I'm your host, John Lerner, with you every Monday night from 10 p.m. to midnight. Now, that was something we don't usually do. If you listen to the show ever, you know that. But we have a bit of a different and a very full program put together for you tonight. And so we're going to actually skip our usual what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, so that we can get it all in. And that, Keith Olbermann, my faithful correspondent, that pretty much sums it up anyway, what's going on in the news and the world. I can just say, things are getting worse, okay? Things are getting worse. However, before we do move on and get right into the main story of the show tonight, I'd have to report some breaking news. All right, currently, short one vote to, de to defeat Betsy DeVos, the Democrats are refusing to yield the Senate floor. Why are they one short? Why are they one vote short? I'll never know. Uh, Betsy DeVos is a billionaire woman who knows nothing about public education, who has never wanted to know anything about public education. Um, she went to private schools. She's a big fan of charter schools, I think. Um, and she's just obscenely unqualified for the Secretary of Education position for which she's been nominated. But apparently. Every single Republican is going to vote for her, except for two who have said they wouldn't, but the Democrats needed to find one more Republican to have some balls, and they couldn't do it. So there's currently refusing to yield the floor, and that could go on all night long. So stay tuned to 
your favorite news source. All right. The title of today's episode is Movie Music, The Best of the Best. So what does that mean? It means, well, I kind of struggled to really kind of put my finger on what the show was going to be because it was originally going to be the top film scores of all time. However, as I was putting the list together and as I was kind of reviewing my breakdown, I noticed that it was becoming more a show about the best composers of all time. And so what you what I was fin what I fin as you know, sometimes I can't speak. So it's a good thing I have this radio show. So what I ended up with was kind of a mix between the two. All right? So we're going to talk about some of the best film scores, but more so about the composers. All right? It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of fun for everyone. Composers, scores, a lot of fun for everyone. As always, if at any point throughout the broadcast you hear something you would like to discuss or feel you have a tidbit you could contribute, always feel free to call in. You can do it at any point throughout the show. The number here is 718-928-9RFB. Again, that's 718-928-9732. You can also tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio or right on our Facebook wall, facebook.com slash NBT Radio. All right, so to kick things off, we're going to do kind of a tribute, more or less, to Danny Elfman. Yes, that's right. Danny Elfman. Now, Danny Elfman has won zero Oscars, but that's all right. You know what? It's not always about the, about the prizes, folks. He's been nominated four times. He has won a Grammy Award, and he has won an Emmy Award. Um, he started out in a band called Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo. And he didn't just kind of quit immediately. He's been in that band since his early days, and I'm pretty sure he still performs with them from time to time. But the first film he composed any music for was his brother's little independent film called Forbidden Zone. Never heard of it? No one has, and no one's ever seen it. The first major motion picture he'd composed for was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go out and do it. That was his first collaboration with Tim Burton, who, if you know anything about Tim Burton or Danny Elfman, you know they went on to collaborate many, many more times. Here's a little taste of what that score was like for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Right, so if you hear at the very beginning in particular, those syncopated rhythms. So that kind of, in a weird way, is kind of a very typical thing that Danny Elfman does. A lot, almost every single one of his scores are very rhythmically driven. That one in particular, um, that was the start of The Breakfast Machine, which is towards the beginning of the film. And when you hear those early tones, you see it's kind of just beginning, the machine's warming up, things start spinning, and uh, it's very rhythmic. I mean, it's a lot of syncopations, a lot of weird rhythms throughout the whole piece. Um, after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, his next big feature film was one of my favorites of all time, Beetlejuice. <laughs> Okay, so once again, very rhythmically driven. 
And then another thing that he um, is kind of, this was really the first example of something he went on to do a lot, and that was uses certain instrumentations to represent various things. If you have seen the movie Beetlejuice, you know that it opens with kind of a panoramic view and almost like you're in a helicopter flying over this little town in which the story is going to take place. And at one point also in the film, there is a fly character. And so in the beginning credits, at one point you hear this. So what you hear there are clarinets representing what I've always considered flies. Hello, punch the mic, punch the mic. I'm just so excited here at Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, when you hear those early on, those clarinets, that makes me think those are flies flying over the... It's actually a model of the little town, and it makes me think of Flight of the Bumblebee, if you know that piece. And yes, okay, and so... You know, I forgot to mention that before Danny Elfman agreed to write the score for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which, as I said, was his first major motion picture, he didn't want to do it. He had to be convinced by both Tim Burton and Paul Rubens, Pee-wee. He didn't want to do it because he didn't, he didn't feel he had any real formal musical training, and so he was scared. He was scared to do it. And he only did so after being convinced by a guitarist in his band, Oingo Boingo. They did it together, they, he helped him out, and they got it done. And when he heard his music played by an orchestra for the first time, he said, quote, it was one of the most thrilling experiences of my entire life, end quote. That's always, I've always really liked that quote. So he's very, another thing about Danny Elfman is not only is he very rhythmic, does he use certain instrumentations often, but he is incredibly creative. And he almost, there's almost comedy in some of his music. For example, he, he scored the Tim Burton film, the 1996 film, Mars Attacks. And talk about funny and creative, the whole movie. But he used a very rare instrument called the theremin. Take a listen. That instrument was used often in the 50s and 60s for like sci-fi space television shows. It's, a, it's like an electronic instrument that you, a person plays by using their hands. They never come into contact with the actual instrument. They use their hands to change the frequency and therefore the pitch. But as you, can, as you heard, it's very sci-fi, very alien-esque, which was obviously perfect for Mars Attacks. Um, going, moving on a little bit in that opening Mars Attacks number, you still hear the theremin, and what else do you notice that we've already talked about when it comes to Danny Elfman? driven just like the other two were this one instead of a machine 
you know, starting to pick up steam or whatever, you hear, and I picture Martians marching. Now, again, these are this is a kind of a subjective interpretation, but when you think about the film for which it's scored and whatnot, I think it makes pretty perfect sense. All right, one more example of a Danny Elfman score that um, you might not recognize, but that kind of uses a lot of the same elements of the others, would have to be this one. Let's see if you can guess which one it is. So, if you're not, I mean, the, the ones I've played, it, it sounds like he only writes music for horror films. Not exactly true, but a lot of his scores do have a dark, dark feel to them. That one certainly included. That was the, um, that was the opening credits for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, funny enough. Now, like I said, his other scores paint a picture, for me at least, this one does certainly as well. Listen. I don't know about you, but I kind of, when I hear that, what I see is first of all like a warehouse like here i see industrial machine like but people moving kind of doing work almost like slave labor like people handing stuff off to each other like grab and give grab and give and whatnot again the context of the film charlie and the chocolate factory definitely helps when it comes to what picture you see and again like i said very early on what makes a film score good and certainly memorable and effective in my mind is if it one is memorable sorry about that noise someone upstairs is clearly having a tap dancing lesson or something it's memorable but also effective and music film scores are supposed to paint a picture that's really the best film scores of all time paint a picture with music you hear their music and are able to see what's going on it may not be exactly what's going on on screen i'm talking about if you're listening outside of a theater but you get the idea you get the feel you know if it's a you know a tense moment or if someone's running or if someone is you know joyous whatever so i think he does an excellent job of that now before we move on from our friend danny elfman i mentioned that he's won zero oscars he but he's been nominated for four he, he was nominated for the oscar for best original score for Men in Black, what? Yep, Men in Black, Goodwill Hunting, Big Fish, and Milk. Did you know he wrote the score for Milk? Don't feel bad, a lot of people probably didn't. But he won zero. He did win a Grammy Award, though. Do you know what that was for? I'll give you, I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. Okay, time's up.
if you didn't know, that was the theme, the original theme, to Batman. Yes, again, Tim Burton films. But Danny Elfman came up and did the scores for Batman, Batman Returns, and I believe that might be it. Very famous. I just punched the mic again. There's this new uh, P, like pop filter on the mic that we've never had before. I've never, I don't know where it came from or why it's here, but it is, and I keep punching it, in ca as you can hear. All right, um, so that's Danny Elfman. I think, like I said, I think Danny Elfman, people don't realize just how much he's done. Did you know he wrote the theme to The Simpsons? Oh, yep, he did. He wrote it in 1989, and the theme has been used ever since. They've never changed it. He also wrote the scores for Scrooged, Dick Tracy, Edward Scissorhands, Nightmare Before Christmas, Mission Impossible, uh, Goodwill Hunting, Spider-Man, Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Milk, Silver Linings Playbook, and American Hustle. Yes, so, Danny Elfman, a great American composer. Moving right along. You know, someone who Danny Elfman has always always been very open about being influenced by, highly, highly influenced by, was a composer named Bernard Herrmann. Now, Bernard Herrmann is well known for many, many scores, uh, but there is absolutely one that unquestionably stands out. Do you have any idea what it is? Well, I truly believe that one of the most identifying factors of the film, and one of the most critical elements in what made the film so scary was the music. And so I'm just going to let the music tell you what the film is, shall we? Well, friends, if you don't know by now, you just don't know the score. This is the music from the film Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, a classic among American cinema. The music in this film is almost like a, a character in the movie. It adds so much to the overall feel and atmosphere throughout the film that I honestly believe if it weren't for the music, the movie would not be nearly as intense or scary or successful. Even Alfred Hitchcock himself is quoted as saying, 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. How he came up with 33%, I'll never know. I would disagree. I would say it adds at least 57% to the tension and drama of the film. While Alfred Hitchcock was greatly fond of Bernard Herrmann, and they had been partners for a long time, he was hesitant to hire him for this production, not because he didn't want him, he absolutely did, but Herrmann, he refused to accept a reduced fee for the film's lower budget. Totally worth it, though, I would say, wouldn't you? What's very interesting, and not many people know, is that originally, Hitchcock requested a jazz score for this film. A jazz score? I just can't even fathom that. Can you even picture, I mean, think of how different this film would be had there been a jazz score. I just don't understand how he ever thought that was a good idea. And obviously Bernard Herrmann felt that same way because clearly he just went right ahead and totally disregarded Hitchcock's request. No, I will not hide in the fruit cellar. <laughs> you think I'm fruity, huh? Perman thought, well, he thought that the single tone color of the all-string soundtrack would be a good way of reflecting the black and white cinematography of the film. What a genius. What a genius he was. The film's main theme, which is what you're hearing right now, is a tense counterpuntal piece, and it sets the tone of impending violence. It returns three times throughout the film. Though nothing shocking occurs during the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, the title music remains in the audience's mind, lending tension to these early scenes. Herman maintains tension through the slower moments as well, uh, through the use of ostinato or even the use of silence. Here's a perfect example, probably the best example of how effective the use of silence can be in film Probably the best example of all time. I'm going to play the shower scene for you, and I want you to notice how 
for the longest time, you hear no music. All you hear is the running water of the shower. Take a listen, folks. those of you who haven't seen the film, what's wrong with you? Go out and rent it and watch it today. But what's happening during that long period where you, all you he heard was the running water of the shower is you see, you see through the shower curtain that someone comes in the bathroom and slowly approaches the shower step by step. As it gets closer, you start to recognize the silhouette as that of an old woman. Knowing the character checked into the motel by herself, one can't help but wonder who this could be, and why are they approaching. Then suddenly it happens. <coughs> highly effective, highly, 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 highly regarded. You know what else is interesting and amazing? When you hear that Sound of the knife being stabbed into the woman's skin. You know what they used to give that effect? They took a knife and they jammed it, stabbed it, if you will, into not a human body, but a fruit. I believe it was an apple. Not positive on the apple, but I know it was some kind of fruit. And that is the sound you're hearing when you hear the stabbing, stabbing, stabbing of the knife. And you know what, folks? I think I may just leave it at that. However, I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't at least mention what it is, what the overall theme of this movie is. I'll say, and this is quite subjective, so take it with a grain of salt, but I feel that the overall theme and the moral of the movie Psycho is regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation. Mother knows best. Sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have years ago. He was always bad, and in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare like one of his stuffed birds. Well, they know I can't even move a finger. And I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say... Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. You know, what's interesting about, well, one of the things that's interesting about Bernard Herrmann is that he, in throughout his life, was only nominated for five Oscars only won one Oscar. So, like I said, it really is more about more than just the prizes, folks. Weirdly, that film score that we just covered, Psycho, the one that is unquestionably his most famous, that did not receive an Oscar nomination. What? Crazy, right? Just crazy. 
He um, directed the film, I mean, he, excuse me, composed for much more than just Psycho, obviously. He did Citizen King, Jane Eyre, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, North by North, Northwest, Taxi Driver, among others. You know, one thing that's very interesting you'll notice throughout the night is that each composer we talk about has a connection with a certain director. All but one or two have a very close uh, connection with various directors. Danny Elfman, Tim Burton, obviously. Bernard Herrmann, Alfred Hitchcock. And you'll see others as we go along. So that was Bernard Herrmann and Psycho. Moving right along. All right, so at this point, we're going to do something that I've just decided to call honorable mentions. These are basically scores that I love by composers that either aren't that some of them aren't necessarily household names but that doesn't mean they aren't successful a lot of them have actually won oscars one in particular is almost hilarious that i'm putting him in this honorable mention category you'll find out let's start off with the theory of everything that's a very recent film it was nominated for best original score but lost in 2014 this is by johan johansson Lovely, right? Lovely. Another recent film, Gravity. Now, that was scored by Stephen Price back in 2013, a year before The Theory of Everything, and this actually did win the Oscar for Best Original Score. Definitely, definitely worth including here. That's probably my favorite part of that whole song. 
at the very end when it's wrapping up and then it's sucked in and the sound goes silent like it's been sucked in space gravity great film go out and see it uh as i mentioned the theory of everything was also nominated for best original score but it lost who did it lose to the grand the budapest hotel also a nice score total bullcrap the theory of everything should have won that year no question about it but you know whatever okay next honorable mention now we're gonna go back in time just a little bit remember the 90s who doesn't love the 90s one of the this is one of my favorite film scores of all time was it nominated for an Oscar? It was, but it lost. It's the score to A Cider House Rules, or Cider House Rules. Gorgeous score, gorgeous movie. If you haven't seen it, go out and see it. It stars Tobey Maguire and Michael Caine. Uh, that was composed by Rachel Portman. And as I mentioned, it was nominated for an Oscar, but it did not win. She, however, has won an Oscar. In fact, she was the first female composer to win an Oscar in her category, Best Original. Actually, back then, it was called Best Musical or Comedy Score. They used to this is dumb, but they used to have two separate awards. One, Best Original Musical or Comedy Score, and one, like, Best Dramatic Score. I don't know. But she won for Best Musical or Comedy Score for Emma in 1996. She was also nominated for Cider House Rules and Chocolat in 2000. So, a very celebrated composer that you probably had never heard of. Moving right along, another celebrated composer can't talk. Another celebrated composer that you've probably never heard of. His name is Elliot Goldenthal. I was very surprised to see how successful he's been, not because I don't think he's talented enough, but just because the score that I know him for is To Pet Cemetery, my favorite scary movie of all time. Thank you. 
this music added a whole lot to that movie, by the way. Uh, we've reviewed that movie, as I've said a million times, and I'll say a million times more. I do believe Pet Cemetery is the scariest movie of all time, and I think the score plays a role in that. Believe it or not, or, you know, again, very good music. Um, but I couldn't believe it when I found out that Elliot Goldenthal has won an Oscar. Indeed, he has. He won the Academy Award for Best Original Score for the movie Frida, which was directed by Julie Taymor, who is a director he very often collaborates with. So, Elliot Goldenthal, a very diverse composer, a very, very accomplished composer. Next, honorable mention. I'm sure you have heard this score before. all you Pixar fans out there, that is the score to Up by Michael Giacchino, who did in fact win the Oscar that year for Best Original Score. I forgot, to, so I mentioned that Elliot Goldenthal won an Oscar. He's been nominated three times, and he's also won a Golden Globe and been nominated three times. So these honorable mentions, these are very accomplished composers, folks. Don't let the fact that they're just honorably mentioned make you think any anything else, any otherwise. Speaking of which, the next composer I am going to honorably mention, it's almost hilarious because this composer has three Oscars, three Golden Globes, and four Grammys. He's composed scores for movies like Big, Lord of the Rings, all of the Lord of the Rings movies, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, Ed Wood, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, and Doubt. But the truth of the matter is, when I was putting together this list, it's all about scores that I like, scores that I was affected by, and scores that are meaningful to me. And when I go through his work, a lot of it's really good, but I don't really care about most of it, except for this one. This score does mean something to me, and it's written by Howard Shore. <laughs> idea what movie that's from? That's right, Mrs. Doubtfire. You original Doubtfire, dude. One of the best movies really ever. Certainly one of Robin Williams, rest his soul, one of his best movies, his most memorable movies. Then again, there's very, very, very many to choose from in that regard. But that was a score by Howard Shore. Like I said, a very decorated, celebrated composer. He's done a lot of work, a lot of great work, don't care. That's the score that I like most, and he's honorably mentioned. Two more honorable mentions. One is Alan Menken. Alan Menken is a, an incredible composer. He's written musicals. He's done a ton of those Disney movies. He's an accomplished composer. 
I have nothing to play of his for you because I don't want to play. You all know Beauty and the Beast. You all know Little Mermaid. You all know those Disney's Aladdin. And so just know that he's honorably mentioned. We don't have enough time to play songs from everybody. So I apologize to Alan Menken, but man, I'm a huge fan. Last honorable mention, writes musicals, has written the musical Hairspray. Hello. Hopefully you know who he is by now. Hairspray, catch me if you can. He also has written the scores for a lot of movies, like Beaches, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, City Slickers, Bogus, Mother, In and Out, Simon Birch, Patch Adams, South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, The Wedding Planner, you know, that wonderful score from The Wedding Planner. Um, but one thing that he does that not, uh, not all composers do is he also does the arrangements of songs, and he's a songwriter. There is a big difference between coming up with an orchestral score and writing songs for a film. So Mark Shaman is who we're talking about, and he's done such great work, such memorable work. Like in Hocus Pocus, he did, the, he did that famous arrangement of, I put a spell on you, and now you're mine. You know, everyone knows it. But he also did the music score included and song arrangements for probably one of the best movies of all time. And that's what this comes from. Speech is a 